Welcome to Ryle Books Podcast. My name is Chloe Chignall, and today we're joined by Alison Grimaldi Donahue and Julia Crispiani to talk about the first English translation of Carla Lonzi's book, Self Portrait, which was translated by Alison herself with editorial assistance from Julia. Carla Lonzi was an Italian art critic, writer, and a feminist activist. Her book Self-Portrait collects a series of interviews that Lonzi recorded and transcribed throughout the 1960s between herself and artists working in the post-war era in Italy. The life and work of Carla Lonzi is inseparable from the cultural, political and social history of Italy in the decades following the Second World War. She occupies a singular position, which today merits re-evaluation. Through the interviews within the book, Lonzi abolishes the role of the critic, seeking change over self-preservation by theorizing against the act of theorizing. The first English translation was published in 2021 by Divided, a press based between Brussels and London and run by Camilla Wills and Eleanor Ivory Weber. Before I hand over to Alison and Julia, I will shortly introduce them both. Alison Grimaldi Donahue is an American poet, writer, and translator currently based in Bologna. She teaches creative writing, translation, and literature at John Cabot University in Rome and Middlebury College in Florence and Rome. She is the author of Body Mineral, published in 2016, and the co-author of On Endings, published in 2019. Her writing and translations have appeared in The Brooklyn Rail, Words Without Borders, Flash Art, Bomb, and Nero, amongst others. Giulia Crispiani is an Italian artist and writer living in Rome, where she works as an editor of Nero Editions. She studied at the Rietveld Academy in Amsterdam and holds an MA in Art Praxis at the Dutch Art Institute in Arnhem. Her work has been presented at the Centre for Book Arts, Central Fees, and Framer Framed, among others. She is the author of What If Every Farewell Would Be Followed by a Love Letter, published by Union Editions in 2020, and What If I Can't Say Goodbye, also published by Union Editions in 2021. This conversation has been recorded over Zoom, so please excuse any interferences in the sound quality. Welcome, Alison and Julia. Thank you both so much for being here today. Thank you so much. So I can start, I guess, with a little introduction about the about the book, and then we can just start talking. And if Julia, you want to add anything as I'm introducing the book, because I'm sure I'll miss things every time. It's like something is forgotten. Um, so I guess I'll give a little introduction to Carla Lonzi, because um, she's pretty known within certain Italian contexts, but not um, everywhere all the time, let's say. And so Carla Lonzi was an art historian, art critic, and feminist. Um, she was born in 1931 in Florence and died in 1982 in Rome. And so she spent the first part of her life um, really as an art historian and an art critic. She studied uh, with a very famous art historian, Roberto Longhi, um, who was also Pierpaolo Pasolini's famous professor as well, uh, which I always think is an interesting coincidence or uh, similarity between the two of them. Um, and so she really started off on a traditional path of art history and she became quite a prolific art critic in the 1950s and 60s, starting from a really young age. She was writing a lot um, 
and and very well, I have to say, like if you read her art criticism, it's it's quite concisive and amazing and clear. Um, and she so she has that practice for a number of years as an art critic writing for an, a, a number of magazines in Italy with great success and getting to know lots of artists um, and building a lot of friendships with them as well. And because of that, probably this book came into existence, uh, Autoritrato, Self-Portrait. Um, so during the 1960s, she, like so many people, I think at the time, got really interested in recording things. Um, like recording devices were suddenly very popular and used in a number of fields. And so she starts recording her conversations with her artists and I say her artist friends as well, because a lot of them were close friends. Um, and so from 1962 to 1969, she has these ongoing conversations with the artists who are featured in Self-Portrait. So Carla Cardi, Luciano Fabro, um, Paolini, Alviani, Fontana, Pascali, Pascali, Turcato, Castellani, Cuneles, Rotella, Twombly, Consagra, Negro and Scarpita. And so to differing degrees, she records these conversations. Some of the conversations are one-time conversations. Other times um, she keeps going back to them because they have an ongoing friendship and relationship. Um, and she has hours and hours of tape recordings that we no longer have, that are lost <laughs> somewhere. Um, and what she does is she takes these recordings and she writes them down, she transcribes them. And so that's actually the photograph that's on the cover of the book as well. Um, it's her sitting at her desk writing them, which I think is funny for me and Julia to be talking about this book today is because I think we both have the experience of transcribing things and like the awkward bodily position and often painful position of transcribing things because it's like really loveless labor, I think. It's like my least favorite thing I've ever had to do. Um, and so, she transcribes these conversations, but she doesn't transcribe them as they occur or as unique, uh, discrete units. She translates them, or she transcribes them um, as if they're in one room in one long conversation. And so she, she makes this double claim that she's keeping in everything the artists say. <laughs> um, so she has all of their uhs and ums and everything that happens when we speak uh, freehandedly, but she also rearranges them and cuts them and makes a montage of the conversation. So it's always been called a convivium, this conversation that is self-portrait. It's really her putting these 14 artists in the same room together um, and then putting herself in that room as well. So it's one room where she is at the center, um, which, is, which is complicated because I think in this book, in, especially in the introduction, she talks about the fact that you have to let the artists speak for themselves yet she's taking control of their speaking for themselves. So it's this, it's double action and it is called self-portrait. So she's guiding the conversation. She's making the conversation. She authors this experimental text with the voices of others. Um, and I think really that's a natural transition to where she's going with feminism. So after this book comes out uh, in 1969 with De Donato, which is a kind of a radical leftist press in, in body, um, she moves away from the art world and starts with Carla Cardi and Elvira Banotti um, to found Rivota Femminile, which is one of the fundamental first groups of feminist action in Italy. Um, and so they start a publishing house, they start having all of these kind of group sessions 
of autocoscienza and, um, and so it's all of this consciousness raising and all of this creation through self, through dialogue and through the relational subject. And so I think this book is sort of, while it seems like it's an art historical text and it seems like something very distant from feminism perhaps in the book, so in the content of it, there are conversations about feminism, but also in, in that very action of declaring it a self-portrait, but a self-portrait through the voices of others. She's already signaling that the self can't be created alone and that there needs to be this dialogue. Um, and so from this point on, from self-portrait onward, what Carla Lonzi writes is feminist texts, manifestos, essays about feminism and sexuality, um, and also culminating in a much later book in the 1979 or 80 text by Pure, which is another recorded text um, of her and Pietro Consagra, who is also in this book, who is also in self-portrait, um, who is her partner, her romantic partner, her life partner, um, in which they she returns to the subject of art uh, and the role of women and men and the differences in art and who gives space to whom. But it's another recorded text that we're, we're led to believe is it's completely unedited, but clearly also is edited. Um, so it's this sort of joke, <laughs> I think, um, of control. Um, yeah, that's sort of who Carla uh, Lonzi is. She, the thing about this book I would say is that, and I, I've been recently thinking about it because I recently had a really lovely conversation with uh, Barbara Casavecchia in Venice. And I, it's something that I never thought about before, but she pointed out to me that, um, so this, uh, Self-portrait was partially recorded in, and transcribed in the United States when Carla Lonzi was undergoing treatment for cancer. Um, and so it's important to remember what was at stake for her perhaps in this turn when she's suddenly, um, suddenly thinking about life and feminism in a different way and thinking about the role of the personal and art. But also I think because she, she dies quite young of, of cancer. Um, and to think about how that returns. So her, the rest of her life is spent working on feminist topics and ideas until she dies at age 51. Um, yeah. What I, what I would add to this, I mean, is was already really well explained, but it's the fact that it's like in this book, it's like the, um, the feminist thought is already applied like as a seminal practice in a sense that it's like, what does it mean to be in a collective conversation? What does it mean to be or become many? And what does it mean to uh, set the practice in a dialogue rather than a critique? Because this, is, this book is like, if you look at it from the point of view of art history, where, I mean, where it's supposedly stemming from, the, um, the point that she's trying to make is the fact that it's like the critic is an outdated, it's a figure of the past. It's like, it's not really uh, giving much to the artist practice. It's not somebody who's actually going, knowing well the artist practice, but it's just like interpret it, interpreting it from a, to a certain extent. Um, what like this sitting and staying, being with somebody else was like claiming um, for himself or for herself to be an artist. And like, 
I mean, there is also this kind of overlapping of what is an art practice and what is life, right? Because there is so much um, mm, exoticism and so much like, um, yeah, mystification of the figure of the artist as a genius, especially in the, back in the 60s. This was like huge, right? I mean, everybody would come from a certain artistry and replicate and reproduce a certain kind of conceptual practice that would just erect the artist as the genius. Like you have, you know, you have higher, usually you, if you would look at the names on the cover, you would kind of naturally make a hierarchy if you have studied art history. Like Twombly, of course, comes before Castellani, in a sense. But in this book, <laughs> this doesn't happen. This is like, this is all vanished. You have like, all of them, they are on the same level. They mumble, they stutter, they, they think while speaking. And some of them, more than others, are making themselves ridiculous. So that's why I insist on this like claim that she, that Lonzi does of um, let the artists speak for themselves. There is this leveling down in this very act of sitting down and having a conversation that is like, practice. So it's like, it's basically an autocoscienza before the autocoscienza. Yeah. Like, like what you're saying, I just made me think of, because like this coming down, like I really, like we, we laughed about it a lot, like um, when we were working on the book, because I think also it's important to note, like she, one of her big points, like she brings it up in the forward to the book and she brings it up throughout the book. And I, I think, I wonder if you, what you think of this, Julia, too, is that she brings them down to, to a certain level, but she also brings herself down because one of the points of her text is that the critic is not there to judge. Like she wants the critic, and I think her whole point, and she talks about when she was young and how she always has wanted to be in this role of intermediary, let's say, or um, someone who brings something out in others. Um, so she always wanted to be interviewing people. She talks about when she was really young, she just wanted to like ask people questions all the time. Um, and it's a really comes from a very honest place of wanting to get closer to humanity. And so it's like this double, it's a, it's a lot of double work of her saying, okay, this is what I want to be doing. I don't want to be a critic who's just sitting up on top being like, you're good, you're bad, you're canonized, you're not. But it's also saying, inviting the artists to rethink their own role a little bit. Maybe I could read that passage. I think from the- Find it. <laughs> from, well, I'm thinking of the one from the, her inter, from the introduction, from her introduction, where she says, eh, bah, bah, bah. over these years, I felt my, per my perplexity grow about the role of the critic, in which I've noticed a codified alienation toward the artistic fact, along with the exercise of a discriminating power towards artists. Even if the technology of recording isn't automatically in and of itself enough to produce a transformation in the critic, for whom many interviews are nothing but judgments in the form of a dialogue, it seems to me that from these discussions and observation emerges, the complete and verifiable critical act is part of artistic creation. Whoever is a stranger to artistic creation 
can have a socially determined critical role only insofar as he is part of a majority that is also distant from art, a majority that avails itself of this bond in order to, in some way, find a point of contact. This is how a false model for considering art has been established, a cultural model. The critic is he who has accepted measuring creation with culture, giving the latter the prerogative of acceptance, of rejection, of the artwork's meaning. Our society gave birth to an absurdity when, he made the, when it made the critical moment institutional, distinguishing it from the creative moment and attributing to it cultural and critical power over art and artists. So, I mean, I, to me, she says it all right there. <laughs> that somehow the critic or, I mean, I think also what's important in having our conversation now is like, I think the critic no longer has this power in our society either. I mean, I think critic, institution, curator, I, these are interchangeable terms in many ways, like institutional power is what she's referring to. Um, but I mean, if you alert, enlarge the discourse, like what she says, like she speaks of a majority, right? I mean, if yeah. you also extrapolate, like you take off, you take out from the art world, you, you can apply, this is applicable to any other area, yeah. like in a sense of like, yeah, this kind of vertical hierarchical judgmental labeling kind of practice versus a dialogical being among, sitting among, being many. Mm -hmm. uh, one voice that like, the fact that, you know, this is a montage, okay, it's a post-production work, but what she does, she's basically proving that one voice is influencing the other, that there's no voice that exists outside of the other mm. i mean it's like with all the comparison you know i have to think for instance about fontana who gets really biblical right? <laughs> like, in his like art interpretation that is all of a sudden claiming like for himself to be god because he rips open the canvas and gets to the infinite i mean this is even you know, it's beyond any contemporary philosophy. It gets back to the genesis. I don't know how, you know, I mean, but because this kind of, uh, it can do that because this kind of um, representation is, it exists, is already there, is already established and a man can claim for himself to be God. I mean, a Cardi would never, say such a bullshit if you <laughs> allow me. Yeah. But it's, you, so it's like, it's this like kind of like mirroring the attitudes that makes you, brings you back into this room full of people because this is what this is. And there's no, you know, it's not a white cube with paintings with a label where you're like, you have no detachment you have no attachment to the subjectivity of these people but these people are there like for who they are and then you you can you know you can look at fontana's canvases in with another point of view <laughs> like <you're> just... <laughs> he makes the, some of the most exaggerated claims come from him come from rotella i mean yeah. this idea of themselves and I think that's part of what her act is also doing is like, she lets them say, I mean, remember when we, so maybe we should say, I mean, 
So I translated the book, but Julia really helped me a lot in making sure <laughs> that I was translating things that were not out of control because as I read it, so Italian is not my first language, but it's you know a very close second. <laughs> and um, so I wanted Julia to be there to make sure that kind of to edit and to make sure that it wasn't me, that it was an understanding because the text is so um, wild and disjointed at times and so colloquial that it, there were moments when I would read it and think I was misunderstanding, but actually it was just the text that was really not making sense. And so we had this back and forth of like, what do you think he's trying to say? Uh, is this really what's going on here? And we both, there was a lot of, you know, an ongoing dialogue about how to make things make sense without overstepping because some things just don't make sense in the Italian. And so how to keep that nonsense while also making it legible was, was a constant um, negotiation. And I think some of the voices really like reading that closely, they get so out of hand with their egos. And I think we also were laughing because sometimes it does seem like Carla Loanzi just wants them to sound ridiculous. I mean, she lets them and keeps things that they say in the book that are so embarrassing when you look at them from a historical point of view. Um, and some of the things are just offensive, like being racist or sexist. Um, and you know, But some of the things are much, it's much more subtle than that. And like, um, looking back at someone like Fontana, you know, the way that he would speak about himself as a god, probably it sounded very authoritative to him and to many of his peers. Now looking back, we think, oh, how dated such an idea of yourself that is to have. I think, it, or, or on the other hand, I think in some ways that's still an accepted way of conceiving of oneself in some circumstances and in some circles. Um, and, and maybe also to the benefit of the people who do that kind of, who have that kind of behavior. We see it, um, certain artists who are able to maintain that kind of self image, let's say. Yeah, sorry, I've interrupted you. No, no, go ahead. That, that um, the lots of work has been done in terms of like linguistical terms of like, yeah. also what it is in our artistic practice. And like, I mean, but, but we are, this book was written in a historical moment where, you know, like artists were, financed by CIA and they were like they were meant to become bombastic they were meant to sell they could buy properties by selling I mean there was the there was so much speculation around, around the art mar market yeah. that they had to be you know to kind of inflate themselves exponentially so the and there is there is also a bit of that in this book because like these um, bodies, they get accustomed to inflate themselves with whatever theory, whatever like substantial kind of promotional, self-promotional language, because they have to, um, they have to sell themselves in the market. And this is like, you know, in the sixties, this is kind of new, right? I mean, it's just started after the war. It's like, just happened. And they want to position themselves always against the American artists and prove exactly. that they are yeah. like because the American artists are already having this economic boom. And so they're kind of exactly. weaving their way into that as well, I think. Which is like, which is also a really, um, say, Western bloc kind of mm -hmm. thing. You know, I mean, if you think about Italy or France or like whatever, Western, Western Europe is like everything is shaped after that. Like there is a certain glory, a certain American dream to be followed and then everything comes follow follows along 
No, because I, I mean, I don't, I was thinking of this before also when we were talking about, um, uh, about themselves and promoting themselves. And this idea is that I, I, I often forget to bring it up, especially when the, it's an audio conversation mm -hmm. um, about the photographs in the book. Yeah. Um, which I think are really important to, to all of these things, right? So it's important to, there are all these photographs in the book. There's over a hundred photographs. They're just black and whites. Um, and it's always been that way. And they're snapshots. They're not fancy photographs. They're not um, photographs of artworks necessarily, although at times they are, but it's often the person in the studio. But there are also photos of uh, Carla Lonsi and her son, um, family photos, childhood photos of the artists. Um, and, it's, and it's always positioned in conversation with things that are kind of an oblique understanding of the connection, let's say, between the image and, and the text. And I, and I think it goes, it's a weird, has a weird dialogue with the text and what is being said at the time, because maybe it has something to do with what the person is saying, or maybe it goes directly against it. Um, like you'll see them talking about something particularly professional or self-promoting, and then there's a photo of them as a baby, <laughs> um, which, I, I mean, I think now it's, I've never thought of it much, but I think now we do that. Now we have this um, this mode of using all kinds of personal. We use the personal to self promote a lot more. Um, there's a there's a blending and a collapse of those walls in our daily lives. It's so normal we don't think about it at all um, through through the social media we use, and, and especially as artists, um, you you have to kind of there's this different kind of mediation. In the 1960s, it definitely was not the case. Um, you know, I've been thinking as we're speaking because um, we were saying we gave some presentations about the book. I was just in Venice um, and it was really nice. Um, but I and it was funny because there's the biennial happening right now. <laughs> and then there's this book. <laughs> um, and I, I've like, I don't know, I've been thinking about it a lot. And um, because so the afterword of the text is written by Claire Fontaine, by Fulvia Carnevale specifically, I think we can say that. Um, and she's, she includes this comment of Carla Lonsi's about the biennial, which I hadn't realized until I reread it the other day. <laughs> and I felt funny. Um, it's like, so she writes, for Lonsi, the state of affairs was already very clear when she spoke repeatedly of self-portrait, in self-portrait of the mirage of the Venice biennial, quote, one cannot make use of the recognition that is given in exchange. One cannot do any something with it. It seems to me that all artists have this experience. Um, because I think it's also important to think um, of, of why, um, why this book has relevance today and why um, I wanted to translate it into English and why I think we did this work um, and why Divided was also willing to, tr to do produce this, you know, to publish this book in translation, which was something new for them also. A, a book also, I was talking to Eleanor recently about the fact that nobody at Divided could read the book before we translated it. And so like, <laughs> um, that was a big risk that they took and, and why I think, and I, I'm interested to hear Julia on this a lot too, um, is why it's important today, why this book has still has relevance because it's, it's, you know, 50 years late. I always think of it that way. I think of translations as arriving late, but maybe also in the in the correct moment that they're necessary for the given culture. Um, and I think 
what the issue is, is I think things have changed a great deal. I don't, I'm, I'm really curious to also to hear what say about this is that Carlonzi is really proposing a different, um, I mean, she's proposing a different frame, a different paradigm, a different way of living art and the art world, right? She's rejecting because after this book, she renounces art. She's like, I'm not going to participate as a critic anymore. I'm not going to, she, she writes another, she has an essay, which is, you know, the, what to do basically at moments of the celebration of, of male creativity um, and how to not participate in any moment of male creativity, how it's impossible for a feminist to do such a thing um, without promoting and celebrating also patriarchy. Um, and so, and she also writes about the solitude of the critic much earlier than this in 1963, about how the critic is kind of stuck in this isolated moment and how can this person get out of it? And so she really, she's frustrated for many years. And so after this book, she's like, forget it. I don't wanna, I don't wanna be a part of that system anymore. And in fact, she's so militant about that. She loses her friendship with Carla Cardi because Carla Cardi at a certain point says, well, actually I am an artist and I have to keep pushing through no matter what. I have to find a place for myself within the system and believes that she can find that place. Um, but I, all this to say, I don't, I think there are a lot of things in here that have changed, like, thank God, right? Um, but I also think they haven't. And I look at the system and I look at the larger art system um, and, you know, having just visited the Biennale, which is beautiful and spectacular and shiny and new in many ways. Um, I don't think that the things that, that Carla Lonzi was hoping for have been achieved. I don't think that the, the art system is so different or structured in a way that is not about um, objects and mystification and speculation. I, I think we are still very much within that world. Um, and even if the content changes, I don't think um, the container has changed. I wonder what you think, Druda. Well, I think that there are pockets um, yeah. where this is all changed. And I think there are practices where, I mean, we're, we have more tools to be aware of things, let's say, um, linguistical tools and um, theoretical tools. And I mean, for, on the one hand, Lonzi is being quoted abroad. Like I've, I've been studying in Amsterdam and this was like often the case that it's like somebody would quote Lonzi with a self-translation or, uh, but there was no official source. So it's also useful to um, have something like that, like in terms of like academia, which is another kind of uh, art world, <laughs> but <laughs> we, we're not gonna get into that uh, now. Uh, and then um, because, because we, now there are practices that are um, they're applying this kind of theory as in as much as this book does, you know, what's an application of theory, like not, not theoretical, but political practice, let's say, because there was no theory yet that could sustain this kind of uh, practice. This, the autocoscienza was not yet been, you know, theorized and it was, it was like learning by doing kind of thing. And now we have more, um, way more source, sources to kind of 
decide to de deciding to act otherwise. Um, but of course, it's like it's if you want to stay inside of certain milieu, <laughs> it's still like Carla Cardi. You have to. Um, it's a job, no? Right. So it's like you have to choose your boss if you don't have other um, economical possibilities or if you don't have any. Again, it's like we're dealing with something that has to do with the market. We're dealing with something that has to do with like a lot of self-promotion. So with ego, we're dealing with something that um, we can still critique. We can still improve. We can still, or we can just take distance, you know? I mean, we also uh, speak, me and you, Alison, we often speak about poetry and what does it mean? Uh, on the one end, you have like the freedom of language, which is like something you kind of take individually and then you share with the others. And then you also have a kind of like uh, way of seeing things. And I think this book, seeing and leaving things and like a certain kind of posture we can go also into this, you know, like how do you absorb and how do you um, then digest? And I mean, there's also a certain uh, extent of courage that this book gives you because it's like, it's an operation that when it was done was really like, it's really courageous. She's like, she, she's like, okay, I don't want the control that um, how I don't want to use the control in the way that society has taught me or art history has taught me or, you know, I, I want to, I can do things otherwise. And this mm. is the kind of like um, entitlement that this book gives you. Yeah, I think our conception of, because I was just thinking about poetry in respect to that idea of the white cube and the phallic object, which, just thinking of Pietro Consagra and all those phallic objects um, that he made. <laughs> um, because I think in some ways, like there's a, like in respect to the art system, Carla Lonzi choosing writing and choosing pub publishing, um, like a very small um, niche activity also within that world is, is quite, um, a bold move and I always had a really difficult time understanding it instead of wanting to fight and it was only like through orienting myself within her context that I really was able to grasp why she might have done that um like renounced and withdrawn because um sometimes it's an impulse and I know you also feel it <laughs> Julia um I'm I'm on the verge of <laughs> constant <laughs> withdrawal <laughs> but I, and I also think like because um and I find poetry to be a refuge because working within the art system, right? Because I think um, for whatever reason, I found um, most of my friendships and most of my comfort to be within the world of art um, because there are a lot, there, as you were saying, there are so many people and so many realities that are beautiful and doing good things. Um, and I, and mostly, yeah, I am a poet and mostly I write and mostly I translate. And so those things are outside of the system also because they're really 
um, difficult to make commodities out of in one regard because poetry is not something that is easily consumed or that can be, um, you know, it's just writing and it's, it's a, it is an arte povera in a sense. Um, and at the same time, when I think of the white cube and I think of the phallic object, I think that poetry also deeply runs the risk and has a serious history of doing the same exact thing. Um, it's just that it's not, it's not in the same kind of historical moment perhaps of uh, that the monumental art is in a way. Um, because in terms of, you know, poetry has a history of lots of male masters the same way art does. Um, and so it's not, it's not automatically, let's say, a place that's safer or um, protected from, from this kind of egotism and, and self-referentiality and, and genius making. Um, I really, I feel like very deeply aware of that. And so I think also part of the work of this book and I think why it's so important is that it, whether it's with Carla Lonsi or with whatever work, I think it's important to think about because publishing this book now, I think for Divided, State, whether they knew it or not, and I think now they do, um, is, is a deep, it's a serious signaling um, of what they stand for as a publishing house. And I think it, it fits perfectly well with everything that they've been doing. Um, but it is a big statement to publish Carla Lonzi um, in English because it's a, it signals to what kind of work they believe in. And I think it's, it actually, uh, is, perfectly positioned within within all of their other books, but um, it's also like a, a way of tradition making and, and canon making and, and an alternative kind of connection and, and an alternative hierarchy and an alternative chain of influence, let's say, um, that Carla Lonzi affords us, that she opens the road to a different possibility for art making today, even though the book happened 50 years ago, I think um, to, to be in English now allows readers something that they haven't had. Like Julie was saying, there were all of these like, you know, partial translations, books about Carla Lonzi, um, but nothing of a, no, no primary text. Um, and I think having the primary text is exceptionally important um, in every case, like that we, when we can't, necessarily access it in the original language, um, but we can we know of a person or something they've done because I she's a complicated figure. And I think that's part of her importance is, is that people can read this book for themselves and see that it's not perfect. And I think, you know, also her other things, I hope that we will get to translate them because she's the part of the power of her work is that she's completely fallible. Um, that she is a product of her time, that she's a product of her context and that she's working through the ideas. And so it's not that she, um, she doesn't ever propose that she's got all the answers. And I think, I think that's what makes her so exciting today. And also when, because we do have more theories that we can read with her, mm -hmm. we're able to understand her perhaps in a different way now. Um, not more fully, <laughs> and I wonder what she would say to that, but, and I wonder how she would react to contemporary theories. I don't know what she would say or do, but I think we have more tools to access these ideas that she's offering us to put them into practice. True. I'd like to 
you made me think about um, something that is like is actually really inherent of um, any kind of uh, let's call it minoritarian practice or theory. The fact that you have to go through self-affirmation before you can build mm-hmm. on theory. And this, I mean, autoritratto for sure, I mean, stemming from a certain kind of professional trajectory that is like the art history um, one, but also, you know, Taci, Anziparla, Hegel, let's be on Hegel and all, all of the other books there, failable, uh, manifestos. I mean, this is this is like it's not a stated manifesto, but it's like that's why I thought about this when you were saying about what uh, like the publishers <laughs> um, positioning um, by deciding to publish publish this book. That's you know, it's like this is a manifesto of practice, in as much as. Um, so that's this like it's it's a whole you know it's a whole way of again not stating the truth but like kind of self-affirming finding a place with a um affirmative politics not you know not negational but i mean which is like inherent inherently feminist right i think so i mean what you're saying is i really agree with this idea that because i think one of the things i wanted to bring up i think today in our conversation um because carla lonti is um often kind of appropriated by certain types of feminists um trans exclusionary feminists um because a lot of the folks who she was associated with in the 1960s and 70s are still around um, and have a certain kind of politics or people who knew her or knew of the group, right? Or so that like the direct descendants of Ribota Feminile, let's say. Um, and I really think it's, I think it's really unfair to her legacy because it's nothing she ever said. Um, and I think one of the, one of the other points of of wanting to translate this book and wanting to reconsider Carla Lonzi today and, and really in detail um, is because a lot of feminism in the 1970s in Italy was the feminist, fem, feminism of sexual difference. So it was very much focused on the biology of women as being something different and feminism stemming from that. Um, I don't think that we have to take all of her ideas <laughs> or we don't have to take them as they are directly written, or she even says in her manifestos and in all of her things, like these are ideas in flux. These are ideas that I'm trying to work through and develop. Don't freeze them in time. Don't take them too literally. Like I'm tr- we're trying to figure them out. And I, I really wanna protect that part of her and like esteem her for those words, because I think, you know, there's the risk of, kind of petrifying someone in time and saying, look at the ideas of this group in the 1970s and we've moved on from them. And the thing is, I like to think of those ideas as saying, okay, that was a step, um, 
a step towards something. And I think we are moving forward from that. And I think she's helped us with that. And I don't think, I just wanna be careful because I want to remember that she said things that maybe I don't agree with at certain points. And I think that's also fine. I, I don't think she was perfect, um, but we can take some of her ideas and see how they apply to what we're thinking now and see how where we've gotten now comes from past thinking um, and really recontextualize all of it and, and not remain stuck in this historical kind of quagmire of, of feminism of sexual difference because she says a lot of things that transcend that kind of thinking. And I don't, and I, I really don't wanna put words in her mouth. And I think if she had been alive today, she would be, uh, in her 80s today, it would only be fair to give her a chance to, to express herself. Um, and so I really don't like this idea of appropriating her and saying, oh, but she thought this or that. Um, and I, I really wanted to make that clear in this conversation because I do hope that we get to translate her other essays. Um, but I also think like when she talks about the vaginal woman and the clitoridian woman, um, which are two of her essays, because it's talking about female sexual liberation um, in a way that I don't think anyone was at the time. And I think it's really important that those essays are better known and translated, um, that I don't think we have to take things so literally. And I don't think she meant them so literally either. Um, I think she was talking about women, all women, um, taking possession of their bodies and taking possession of pleasure. Um, which was such a revolutionary thing to be saying back then. So um, I just really wanna start thinking of her outside of this idea of only feminism from the 1970s, but looking at her philosophies also in terms of Marxism and Hegel and really looking at what she was trying to say. Um, it's really important to, to say that in this space, I think. Also to see her as, a, as an attempt, <laughs> like, because that's, I mean, her trajectory is that. It's like, I'm attempting, I see something into art I practice that doesn't work. I go into militancy and I even, like, she even made this like as a claim, no? Right, I mean, I, I didn't find anything there and these two things cannot cope. So I go attempt somewhere else. So it's like, and I think her um, work is like, it's about this, it's like, trial and error and and the beautiful thing is that it comes out always as collective so she puts always herself among others among many um i will say it, no i'm really grateful to divide it i want to emphasize that like they and also to the galleria nazionale to christiana colu who's the director over there she was really from the very beginning a promoter of this book like um and got me in touch with carla lonzi's son and really made that happen in terms of the rights to the book um, but like also working with Divided really fits into all of this. Like they, I would, like they could propose any project. I'd be like, it was really, I mean, it go, it's an ongoing constant pleasure to work with people who really listen um, and want to have this dialogue and are willing to like, to, to engage in such a profound way. Um, really wanted to say that. Self-Portrait is available for purchase at Ryle Books, both in our store in Brussels and via our web shop, which you can access at www.ryle.space.
Thanks for listening to Rio Books Podcast. If you liked this episode, do consider subscribing to our channel to listen to more readings and conversations with artists and authors.